Today we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Last week we talked about uh, this person, Saul, and uh, how he was converted. He was saved on the road to Damascus. And today we will, we will be continuing his story. We'll be going through Acts 9, 19 to 31. Um, I'm thinking I'm just going to read this uh, from, from the get-go, from the beginning, so just so that we have an understanding of what's going on, and then we'll dive right in. All right, let's do that. Saul spent... Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. One of my favorite movies is The Matrix. Um, I can't believe it's been 23 years since this movie came out. Long time. Uh, but anyways, if you're not familiar with this movie, basically, uh, in this world, the Matrix is this uh, simulation, like a lifelong simulation that people live in. Most human beings are involved in the simulation, and they don't even realize that they're living in the simulation. The reality is um, they're, they're in these pods, and they're just being harvested by these AI machines, but they are pacified by this lifelong simulation, so they think they're like going to work and going to school and working a job and falling in love and these things, but it's all in their minds. So that's sort of the context of the movie. And uh, the main character, his name is Neo. He's a computer programmer, and uh, he spends his whole life in the Matrix, like most people. But one day, he meets a few strange people. He's been having sort of a clue that something's going wrong with the world. But he meets these strange people who asked him to trust them, and he trusts them, and they are able to extract him out of the matrix. And for the first time in his life, he experiences reality, uh, what reality is, actually. And now he realizes that everything in his life up to that point had been a lie. And, and, and now that he realizes that, everything changes. And so uh, because of that, now he has a new, a, a, a radically new mission which is to rescue other people from the matrix. And he also has this radically new uh, community, uh, which is, you know, these people like Morpheus and Trinity and Tank and all these guys. And these people, they're stopping at nothing in order to be like the resistance, to resist these AI machines and to support each other and fight for one another. And uh, that's sort of the plot of the movie. Sorry, I spoiled it for you if you were planning on watching it, but it's been 23 years. So anyways, a similar thing happened with Saul. Saul, he had been living a lie for most of his life. 
he thought that the Christians were the bad guys, and so he spent his time imprisoning them and killing them. And then, uh, as we talked about this last week, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he sort of had this uh, life-changing experience. Life-changing experience. He now realizes, oh man, everything I stood for, everything I was a part of, that was a lie. I need to be radically transformed. So now he has a radical, a radically new mission and a radically new community. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how, you know, you know, many Christians, especially those of us today who've been living in the church for a long time, we sort of forget how radical our mission actually is and how radical our community is just because we've been living in it so long. But people who are freshly new to the faith, people like Saul who was just converted, they sort of instinctively get it because they realize, oh man, so much is different now. So much has changed. And this mission that I'm a part of now is totally different than what I was experiencing before. This community I have is so unique. And so my goal is to sort of refresh ourselves, to remind ourselves of just how radical our mission actually is, how radical our community actually is. So that's what we'll do today, all right? Um, and, and again, this is, just to remind you, this happens right after Saul was converted, okay? So there isn't a whole lot of time. It's not like he went off to seminary and studied for a long time, and then he returned in his faith over the span of a decade, and then he started doing these things. This is right away. So let's start reading uh, verse 19 again to 20. Saul spent several days with the, the, with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And I don't think it's... Uh, it's an accident that this phrase at once is here. I think it just goes to show Saul, as soon as he got it, as soon as he understood the life-changing power of the gospel, as soon as his life was turned around, he at once began to preach the gospel. Um, he didn't go, you know what, I don't know if I'm spiritually mature enough to preach the gospel. I don't know if I have all of my theology intact a little bit. I don't know if maybe I need to take some classes first. And you maybe take, need to take some evangelism classes or some doctrine classes. He didn't, he didn't do that. He just sort of instinctively recognized this message that changed my life has the power to change other people's lives too. And so I want to dedicate myself to preaching the gospel. You know, it's kind of like Neo in the Matrix. As soon as Neo was rescued from the Matrix, it was just intuitive to him. He couldn't just wait around pretending like the Matrix didn't exist. He needed to take it upon himself to rescue other people from the matrix as well. You see, when we come to Jesus, not only do we have a radically new identity, but we also have a radically new mission. It's not like these, uh, and it's not like these things come in stages. You know, sometimes we think this way, like stage one is you have a new identity, and then you spend a few years learning about your new identity, soaking in your new identity, experiencing your new identity, and then you graduate, you move on to level two, which is your new mission, then you go out and you do your mission. But actually, these two things come hand in hand. You know, that's why, for example, Jesus, when he first called the disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you see that? So the follow me is the identity part. Here's a new identity. Now you are a follower of Jesus. And simultaneously, you have this new mission. You will be fishers of men. You will now bring other people to the kingdom as well. Um, another example I can think of, Saul, he would later write in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been reconciled with God. That's our identity. Now we are in a restored, redeemed, reconciled relationship with God. And he says, also, you are ambassadors for Christ. That's our new mission. We are 
also sent out to reconcile other people to God. And so all these things come hand in hand. The moment we decide to be saved, to come to Jesus, to have a new life, is also the same moment we decide we're going to be sent out and be on mission for him as well. So not only is our identity transformed, but our mission is also transformed. Not only when we become Christians, not only is it uh, who we are that has changed, but what we do changes as well. So specifically, we share the gospel with those who don't yet know. Unfortunately for Saul, this transformed mission often puts him, put him in life-threatening situations, and we read, read about that in our passage today. Twice in this passage, I don't know if you caught that, twice in this passage, people try to kill him. One time in Damascus and one time in Jerusalem. And this incident in Damascus, it, it, it's very brief in our passage, but he expands on this in 2 Corinthians 11. He wrote about the same incident. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 32 to 33, in Damascus, the governor under King Eratos had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. And now this is noteworthy because he, uh, he expands on what happens with this additional note of detail uh, because in Acts, it just seemed like some Jews were conspiring to kill him. But this made it obvious that it was the governor, this, this king, who was, oh, sorry, the governor under the king Eratos, who was trying to arrest him too. Now, it's one thing if you just have some beef with some ordinary citizens, but it's another thing when your own government is after you. And, and, and so that's the first incident, so remember that. And then the second incident happens at the end of our Acts 9 passage, and it says that in Jerusalem, Saul was debating some Jews, and they were trying to kill him too. And, uh, and it wasn't just these two experiences. Now, you might think, wow. Saul, you, you signed up for this faith, and all of a sudden people are trying to kill you. That's, are you sure you made the right decision? And, and, and if you track his life, you know, he would continue to preach the gospel, and you actually continue to go through very similar experiences. Um, Saul will find out that this radical mission also brought about a radical amount of suffering. In fact, suffering for the sake of the gospel would sort of become his normal routine. He wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 27. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. So he's, he's been going through the ringer his whole life, because he decided to follow Jesus. And, and imagine this, you know, in an alternate universe, if Saul never went on this road to Damascus and he never encountered Jesus, he wouldn't have experienced any of this stuff. He wouldn't have been flogged or beaten or pelted with stones. He wouldn't have been in constant danger or hunger and thirst and things like that. And some might even say his life would have been better if he didn't follow Jesus. Because it seems like because he met Jesus, he also went through immense suffering because of it. And interestingly, Saul seemed to believe that this was normal. This is not just uh, a unique thing for him, but suffering on behalf of the gospel in Paul's mind seems to be normal for the Christian. In fact, this is what he writes in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You hear that? It says, 
Paul says, uh, Saul, I, I keep switching up between Saul and Paul, okay? Anyways, same guy, different names. Many people believe, you know, that he, uh, traditionally, it's, it's said that he was Saul, and then he became converted, and then his name changed to Paul. Some scholars, there's a minority view that, um, this is a tangent, there's a minority view that says his name didn't actually change uh, because there are clear passages in Scripture, like Acts 9, where he's clearly a Christian, but they're still using the term Saul. So they're, they're, they're thinking Saul is just his Hebrew name, Paul is just his uh, Gentile name. Anyways, I switch up the names, okay? 2 Timothy 3.12, Saul is implying that persecution is not out of the ordinary. It is to be expected for those who live for Christ. Persecution is the natural result of someone who is living out their life faithfully. It is a normal part of the Christian experience. I remember when I was in middle school, I grew up in the church, and uh, I had, you know, I was sort of a nerd growing up, uh, memorizing a lot of Bible verses and things like that. And I remember it sort of hit me in middle school. I, I was reading this verse, and I was like, I've never been persecuted before. What does that mean about my faith? And obviously, my context is different. You know, I live in America. I don't live in the Roman Empire. But I remember thinking, if this faith matters to me, should there be a cost? Why does it seem like I'm living out my faith and there seems to be zero cost to my faith? And it just made me wonder, is my faith actually real? Am I actually taking my faith seriously enough? Because there's so many passages about dying to yourself, about taking up your cross. There seems to be this cost of selling all you have to buy this field with a buried treasure. Where is my cost? Now look at these early Christians, you know, Paul and Peter, and even Jesus himself, going through this persecution and seeing the cost that they bared. And I look at my life, you know, fine and dandy, not having too much of a care in this world, and I just wondered, what is my cost? Uh, the South African theologian and activist, Alan Bosak, he once talked about this day when we meet God in the afterlife, and, and he, this is what he says. He says, when we go before him, God will ask, where are your wounds? And we will say, I have no wounds. And God will ask, was there nothing worth fighting for? Um, I don't know about you, but I, I think ever since that day in middle school when I was, this, this, just that basic question, where is my cost? Where are my wounds? I've been thinking about that ever since. And I just sort of decided, I don't want to go through life as if I were just stuck in a computer simulation but I want to go through life with a fighting mentality, with this idea that I want to do anything for Jesus that's possible, even if there's a cost, even if I suffer, even if I get hurt for it. I want to follow Jesus, not just in the easy times, but in the difficult times. And I want to encourage you to ask yourself the same thing. What is your cost? What is your mission? What is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to fight for, potentially to go through suffering for? Whatever it is, you know, it's probably easier said than done. You know, nobody in this room probably wants to suffer. Uh, no one enjoys, enjoys suffering. So I think the question is, if there is a cost, if we do go through suffering, then how do we do it? How do we persevere through it? How do we bear it? Well, that leads us to the next half of our sermon, which is we bear it through our radical community. We bear it through 
a radical community. And what's notable about both of these incidences in uh, Acts 9, where Paul is being killed, or try to, people try to kill him, is that the way he was able to be rescued from death is through community. Both of these times, it was his fellow Christian brothers and sisters who intervened and saved him. You know, in this first incident in Damascus, it was like Mission Impossible, right? We had the scene where they were trying to kill him, and he was in the city wall, and they lowered him in a basket uh, through this window in the city wall. And this scene is very similar. It reminded me of Rahab. If you're not familiar with Rahab, it's in Joshua. Um, the Israelites are trying to take over Jericho, and uh, there's some uh, scouts, uh, some spies that go scout out the land, and they hide in Rahab's room, uh, and they just met. Okay, she's a prostitute. She lives in Jericho. They're natural enemies, but they hide in the room. And then the local governing authorities, they're trying to arrest these spies, and so Rahab hides them, and then she uh, lets them out through a window uh, of the city wall. And it's interesting because the story of Saul in Jerusalem and the story of Rahab and the spies, they have several things in common. So in both stories, you have these local governing authorities trying to arrest or kill them and, uh, because they view them to be the enemy. And in both of these stories, you have these people on the run, and, and they are placing their lives in the hands of people they barely know. Right? Saul, he just became a Christian. He, 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 this is new friends and family for, for this guy. He's placing his lives in the hands of these people that he barely knows. And then these spies, they barely know Rahab. They just met this person. But they're like, you know, these people are trying to kill me. Can you save me? And in both stories, they narrowly escape by being let down this window in the city wall. But think about this for a second. Why, why would these people place their lives in the hands of these people they barely know? Why would they entrust, you know, these new Christians or Rahab to save their lives? Well, it was the only option they had. It was the only option they had. They recognized that if I was going to be a Christian, you have to be my new friends. You have to be my new family for life or for death. You see, when we become followers of Jesus, we have to have community, not because we like hanging out, not because, you know, we like to try new foods or something, but because that's the only option we have. It's the only option we have. These people who are also Christians, they are the only ones who get it. They understand the mission. They understand the cost. They understand the sacrifice. And they are willing to fight for us. And we need them. Christian communities come together not because their members share similar hobbies. They do so because the Christian life is a fight. And you fight a whole lot better when you have people fighting by your side than when you're fighting alone. That's why we have Christian community. So here's another question I want to ask you to uh, invite you to ask yourself. Where is your Christian community? Who is in your Christian community? And I'm not, I'm not just talking about who are you friends with. I'm not saying who, when you are bored, will you talk to so that you can play board games with. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm talking about, even though that's fine to play board games. I'm talking about who is with you in the fight. Who can you rely on when you are in need? Who can rescue you when you need rescuing you? When you need rescuing? And here's the flip side of the question. Who can you be Christian community for? Because sometimes you need help, and sometimes other people need help, right? And so who can you be a source of Christian community for? Who do you feel God is calling you to fight for? Who do you feel 
God is calling you to rescue when they are in need. You know, some people, they, uh, if they don't know the story of Saul very much, they may think of him as this lone ranger just going on all these missionary journeys by himself, but that's actually not true. He was almost always traveling with a team of people. He was always traveling around with companions, with people like Luke and Barnabas and Saul and not Saul, Silas and Timothy. And, and, and in fact, he depended heavily on Christian community. He depended on their finances sometimes. And that's why in his letters, I don't know if you ever, you know, read like uh, the end of Romans, he's like greeting like 100 people. Why is he, if you ever wonder, why is he greeting so many people? Because he believed that the church was a team. He was in such close community with so many people. Everyone was a team. And he spent so much time greeting, so much time greeting people because he depended on these people so much. So many people helped him out on his missionary journeys. He was always co-laboring with people. And I think that's how we need to operate as well. And one of these individuals in particular that Paul, that, that Paul depended so much on was Barnabas. Let's talk a little bit about this Barnabas guy. Okay, so Barnabas, he is one of the most underrated guys in, in the whole New Testament. He's kind of like Justin Tucker. Okay, he's, he's not playing every play. And, um, you know, a lot of, he's not like a superstar like Lamar Jackson or like Paul or Peter. But when he's in the game, like, he counts. He, and he plays his heart out. And he, he's faithful. He's solid. So that's Barnabas. Okay, he, back several chapters ago, he's, he's the guy who sort of initiated this movement of giving generously to the church. He sold his land and gave to the church. And later we'd see him pop up, accompanying Paul on all these missionary journeys. But here, what he's doing is he's ensuring that Paul is welcomed in the church. He's ensuring that Paul's welcomed. Because, did you catch that earlier? In verse 26 to 28, when he, this is Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So do you see this? Not only was Saul facing persecution from outside the church, but he was also facing skepticism from inside the church. And let me tell you, it's one thing, you know, if you know, people who don't share your values, people who don't know you really well, if those people, you know, they don't really like you, that's one thing. But it's another thing when your own family, when your own brothers and sisters, when they're eyeing you and they don't trust you. But thank God for Barnabas. You know, if, if Barnabas didn't show up here, I mean, we could have had a, a church split right there. You could have had, you know, Saul on this missionary journey doing his own thing to the Gentiles and the, the apostles here in Jerusalem doing their own thing. But thank God for Barnabas because Barnabas, he recognized that Saul was not an enemy, but he was actually an ally. Barnabas believed that the church would be stronger if we all worked together, if we all partnered together. You know, when we think about Barnabas' actions here, I think there are two potential applications that I can think of. Um, firstly, here's the first thing I want to... Uh, oh, sorry, I missed that slide. Here's the first thing. Are new Christians welcomed into our community? Are new Christians welcomed into our community? Because... Some Christian communities, they're so clicky, they're so insular, you know, the people are just always hanging out with each other, that individuals, they don't even know how to respond when they're new people, when they're new people joining, when they're new Christians who are joining the church. Um, it's, it's functionally, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in Matthew 23, Jesus condemns some Pharisees, and he says, 
that they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. People want to join them. People want to come into the kingdom, but they're shutting the door in their faces. And I think some, unfortunately, some Christian communities are like that. There are people from the outside. They become new Christians, or they just want to join this new community. They're excited. They're passionate. But these people on the inside, they don't know how to, they don't trust them, or they look different, or they smell funny, or what fill in the blank, and they just don't know how to respond to them. Well, I want to encourage you, if you ever discover that someone in our church is new, if you ever discover that someone in your community is new, please go out of your way to spend time with them, to get to know them, to welcome them into the community, to be like Barnabas and say, hey, here's this guy. I want to get to know you. I want to welcome you into the community because I understand that as a new Christian, you're experiencing a lot of changes. You are you're experiencing a lot of sacrifice. Your, your cost is high right now. So I want to make sure that the sacrifice is worth it. So that's the first application. Uh, are we welcoming people in our community? Here's the second application. Are we willing to partner with Christians outside of our tribe? Are we willing to partner with Christians outside of our tribe? You know, one of the things that grieves me about um, sort of the state of the modern American church is that there's so much tribalism and so much divisiveness. And what I mean by that is um, people are just so divided. They're ethnically divided, theologically divided, politically divided, and so on, divided in so many different ways. And it seems like what people are doing is their experience of the Christian church is becoming more and more narrow because they're associating, associating themselves only with people who believe exactly the same kind of Christianity that they believe. You know what I mean? You know, whatever it's, whether it's, you know, they all vote the same way, or they all have the same stance on spiritual gifts, or the same stance on end times, same stance on creation, whatever, fill in the blank. And so they're saying this is the only way, only legitimate way to practice Christianity, and they don't really associate with any other kind of Christian. Well, we need more people who are willing to become like Barnabas, people who are willing to sort of stand in the gap between different parties, to be able to say, you know what, I recognize this Saul guy, he's very different from us, okay? He has a, a different history, he has a different experience, he might, his theology might even be a little bit different, as we'll, later we'll see, you know, they have different understandings of the Gentiles. So his theology might be a little bit different, but we are stronger together than we are apart. So we need to view ourselves not as enemies, but we need to view ourselves as allies. We don't need to agree on every single thing, we can still take stances, but we need to welcome each other and fight for one another too because we're all on the same team. The unity of the church is one of the best evidences that we have that the gospel is true. So let's not allow these secondary issues to get in the way. So that's the story of Saul's early days as a Christian, okay? He has this uh, newfound faith, this newfound identity, and as a result, he has this new mission, he has this new community, it's radical, and, you know, one of the things I love about the book of Acts, I think in general, is that everything just seems so radical. Um, you have these radical scenes of signs and wonders, radical scenes of prayer, radical scenes of evangelism, radical scenes of generosity, and it just seems like everybody is just so passionate, everybody is so on fire, everyone is so zealous for the glory of the Lord through the gospel. And they lived life courageously with no hesitation. And um, I, just, I just think, I love reading the book of Acts because it's just such a wake-up call every time I read it. Because when I look at my life, 
And when I look at, you know, sort of the typical average American Christian's life, I often don't see that. The church often feels ordinary and regular. People, you know, are safe and comfortable. There's very little fire, very little zeal, very little prayer, very little evangelism, and they're just sort of going through the emotions. And um, it just doesn't seem like people are radical anymore. And, and again, I'm not knocking anybody. You know, I, I feel the same way about myself. And I think I love reading the book of Acts because the more I read these stories, the more, the more I soak in these stories, these stories of Saul, uh, of people like Saul, who are, they are just so living life on the edge. They want so badly, even, they are, even though they are baby Christians, they want so badly for other people to hear the gospel and to believe. I just see how far off the mark I am. And it makes me go, you know what, this level of mission, I want that kind of mission. And this level of community, I want that kind of community. You know, at one point in the Matrix, Morpheus, he's one of these leaders who's, you know, friends with Neo, finding these AI machines, he said to Neo, Neo, sooner or later, you're going to realize, just as I did, that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. There's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And I think if there's one you know, there's a lot of things I could say about the American church, but one of the things I think that concerns me with the American church is that there are many, many people who know a lot of things about the path, but they're actually not walking the path. There are a lot of people who, like, they know their Bible verses, they know their theology, they know their church history, they, they know, like, what to affirm and what not to affirm. They know so many things. They know potentially more things than Saul did at this point, but they're not walking the path. You know, there's a big difference between uh, knowing a recipe and actually cooking. There's a big difference between, you know, knowing the ins and outs of a, of a car manual and actually driving a car. In the same way, there's a, there's a big difference between knowing your Bible inside out and actually living out your faith walking the principles of the Christian life. And I, I don't know where you are individually. Everyone's probably in a different place. But wherever you are, I just want to invite you to take a step towards Jesus, whatever that looks like for you. To, to look at, to think about these stories and acts and go, what are they doing that I'm not doing? Where, what is the zeal that they have that I am not having? And how can I move in that direction this week? How can I walk the way Saul walked? How can I walk the way Jesus walked? And, and this is fascinating, too. When you just think about Jesus, nobody walked the talk like Jesus. No one walked this path more than Jesus did. And what I love about the gospel message, and this is, this is what captivated Saul, and this is what captivates me to this day, the message of the gospel is that Jesus, he could have just known, known the path and not walked the path, he could have said, this is just the way to live, go live it. But he actually walked the path with us. And that's what makes our gospel so exciting. Think about this. Jesus also lived on mission. He came to seek and save the lost. But check out how radical he did this. Okay, so Saul, at one point in time, at many points in time, was uh, uh, almost killed. People tried to kill him. And so what did he do? Well, he, uh, some people got around him. And they, they rescued him. They lowered him in a basket to escape. Something similar happened with Jesus. People tried to kill him too. But what was ironic 
was that was the whole point. That's why Jesus was lowered from heaven to earth, was so that he would die. That was the whole purpose of his mission. So Saul was lowered to be rescued from death, but Jesus was lowered to die. That was his mission. And think about this, Jesus also lives in community. He gathered these followers, and I uh, spent time with them every day. But check out how radical this is. So unlike Saul, Jesus' followers didn't actually fight for him when it mattered. When Saul was about to be killed, his followers, his friends, rallied around him and rescued him. They, they, they stood for him and they fought for him. But when it really mattered in Jesus' life, when he was about to be killed, all of his followers left him. They abandoned him on the cross. And even on the cross, his own heavenly father abandoned him too. At the cross, think about this, at the cross, Jesus lost all community. And why? Why did Jesus go through all that? Why did Jesus go on a mission to die? And why did Jesus go on this cross with no community? For us. He did that to save us, to rescue us, and to ensure that we would be adopted into the family. That's the reason why we as Christians have such a radical mission. The reason why we have such a radical community is because we have such a radical God. Jesus went to such great lengths for us, and that's why we go to such great lengths for him. Let's live like we are members of his family. Let's not just know the path, but walk the path. Let's be on mission, giving our lives for the sake of the gospel. Let's be in community, fighting for our brothers and sisters, and welcoming the newcomers and the outcasts. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this message of the gospel. It just, it's just so mind-blowing what Jesus went through on our behalf, that he would leave his Father in heaven, leave this perfect home to come to planet Earth, born as a manger and a baby, hanging out with dirty animals and and then as he grew up, hanging out with dirty people. Just constantly being surrounded by people who were resistant to your spirit. People who were blaspheming you and people who were lying about you. And ultimately people who abandoned him the day he died. And you did that for us. What a wonderful message. What a wonderful story. And we thank you so much for what happened. We thank you so much that the story is true. I pray that this radical gospel may seep down into our bones and infiltrate every area of our lives, that we will be able to wake up from our drunken stupor, wake up from our hard-headedness, and be able to see just how radical this message is so that we would live out the radical implications of it. May we pursue mission in a radical way. May we pursue community in a radical way. Not just so that we would have more friends, not so that we would just have a good time on Saturday nights, but because that's the only option we have in this life that you've given us. May we be faithful ambassadors for Christ, citizens of the kingdom, bringing heaven down to earth until we wait the day you come home. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.